Hello and welcome to the Scientist CEO podcast, where we talk to scientists that have turned CEO about their journey from first idea to leading a company forward. These conversations are here to inspire, inform and entertain anyone interested in science and leadership. Today's episode was recorded as part of our monthly live event. If you'd like to join us for the next one, head over to our website at spin-up.science or follow us on social media. Hello everybody and welcome uh, to this month's edition of The Scientist to CEO. Our fantastic guest for today is also from the Bristol ecosystem, uh, Dr. Leah Lee, award-winning physicist and inventor, founder and CEO of Zero Point Motion. Zero Point Motion are scaling the production of sensors for precision, positioning and navigation. By combining cavity optomechanics, the technology behind the discovery of gravitational waves, with high volume chip production techniques, industry can start to take advantage of increased sensitivity in areas such as structural health monitoring, image and platform stabilization, and of course, navigation and positioning to name but a few. I usually start this with uh, a question that I think sets us up to discuss both the process of venture building, as well as the goal of, of building these companies in the first place. Leah, can you start by answering a little bit around what problem are you actually looking to tackle in the world? With inertial sensors, um, they're fantastic. You see them in everything. They're inside your phone, in your car, in robotic lawnmowers, in robots. Basically anything that moves can use an inertial sensor to track how it's moving and the direction and trajectory that it's moving. But what we find in the market is that there's this big void where you have super cheap inertial sensors made by companies like Bosch, ST, Microelectronics. They're the ones that are inside your phone, inside Internet of Things stuff. And then you have really, really expensive inertial sensors, which are only accessible to aerospace, defense, you know, space exploration, military, those types of applications. And it's a really big difference. So the ones that are used in the defense industry, they're sometimes up to a quarter of a million pounds each. And they can often be really large kind of rack size, you know, 19 inch kind of rack mounted big devices. And the problem is, is that those really sensitive sensors, the way that they're made, the way that they're designed is inherently non-scalable. So it's really difficult to miniaturize them to fit inside a phone. And it's even harder to try and get the cost point down so that any you know, smartphone manufacturer would even consider putting in like a fiber optic gyroscope into their phones. And what's happened with the really cheap sensors, although they're fantastic and you can make billions of units of those every year, the cost point of these sensors in terms of just the cost of goods can be like a few pennies, basically. It's that cheap because you're able to utilize economy of scale. So you can make kind of thousands of these just in one go. You know, that business model is great, but the science behind those sensors is really starting to like stagnate in terms of how much more performance you can extract out balanced with that kind of cost kind of benefit uh, in, in terms of the fabrication side. And so the core issue with the really cheap sensors is that there's a tiny silicon structure inside and it responds to acceleration and rotation. So it's very similar to if you're in a car and the car suddenly breaks and you feel your body actually jerking forward, that's what happens to these tiny little silicon structures inside the chips. Um, and that's how you're able to measure acceleration and rotation. 
but the measurement that they're using to detect that tiny motion is a capacitive one. It's basically like an electrical signal. Um, the capacitance changes as a function of that movement, but this capacitive readout is plagued by a lot of noise. So it's like having too much static on a, on a radio signal, for example. You just, you just cannot resolve the really, really small, finer motions. And this noise gets worse the smaller the sensors, and it's really difficult to overcome. And so what we do at Zero Point Motion is we go, okay, let's just remove that capacitive readout entirely and swap it for an optical one. And let's go a little bit further and not just kind of a plain kind of, oh, let's see how the motion, you know, you know, cast a shadow, for example, if you're just shining light at something moving, we go one step further and we actually use an optical resonance. So what we do is we make sure that the mechanical motion is disturbing this optical resonance. And because it's a resonant condition, you get a massive boost to your signal to noise ratio. So we're kind of aiming to reach kind of 100 to 10,000 times lower noise floor just in that measurement readout of these tiny silicon structures. Interesting. So, so I mean, it, it kind of sounds like there's uh, some elements of serendipity from like where the technology state is to also what the market is interested in doing and where those applications actually lie. I guess an ignorant question for me would be how, how good is good like how sensitive do these things need need to be and and what's the driver to make to improve them i guess yeah that's a great question because i think i came from a research area that was really obsessed about quantum sensing and so the academic in me is naturally always wanting to be like what's the limit can we beat the limit can we go to like some world record breaking sensitivity but actually i really had to change that style of thinking as soon as i got onto the more commercial aspects of what a product should be doing. So there's, there's two aspects. First of all, customers that I've spoken to, they don't need 10,000 times better sensitivity. They'd be happy with 10 times, 100 times. That's, that's enough. And they'd be willing to pay a few hundred pounds to a thousand pounds. It doesn't need you to push things to the absolute limits. You know, and those applications are things like drones. So with drones, um, they have vertical height and they can rotate on the spot and they can move extremely fast. So I was speaking to someone whose drones can move at 200 miles per hour. No. So I just think it's like, I can't even <laughs> imagine it. Um, but, but you know, with those types of dynamics, it's really not compatible with GPS and cameras mm. and LiDAR. It's moving so fast that the update rate from GPS or cameras, can't, it just can't keep up. You know, it's huh. the drone's done something before you get the data basically. Um, and with vertical height and rotating on a spot, GPS just really hates that. It's not it's not optimized to, to tell you that it's rotating in one spot, for example. Um, and so there's a pain point there for sure. And then you also have things like autonomous vehicles and robots. It's a bit harder to quantify because with autonomous cars, for example, it, you know, there is no one solution. So you always have to have GPS plus cameras or LIDAR plus an inertial measurement unit. You have to have all of them in a module to have the best kind of integrity, safety, redundancy. But what we found is that there's been less attention on improving the inertial measurement unit, which is a shame because out of all of those technologies, 
the the inertial measurement unit is the only one that doesn't rely on external sources. So with GPS, you have to have a satellite or at least three or four satellites. Mm. If you're underground in a tunnel, you don't get that. Yeah. With with cameras and lidar, you need an environment around you. You need features. If you're just in a massive field, then then those aren't going to necessarily help you pinpoint your trajectory. And so the IMU is really, to me, the most critical one because it's the one which cannot be tampered with. And it's the one that's actually measuring what's happening to the platform, not measuring what's happening relative to something else that needs to be there in the background. Um, and so what we see the IMU, or at least our IMUs, being able to kind of increase the duration that you're able to hold accuracy when you don't have any GPS whatsoever. I guess it's that a, a almost delicate balancing act against maybe what other players in the marketplace are trying to do. Do you find yourself, I mean, I assume there are there are other people kind of looking at how do we uh, take photonic approaches to, to doing these sorts of things. How do you balance it against those competitors? Uh, or is it, you know, is it a cost? Is it performance? Like what's actually the buying metric that's really driving the marketplace? Yeah, so unfortunately with inertial sensors, if you want the, the largest market possible, it's all down to cost, size and power. Um, and what we see actually is that the existing kind of high volume capacitive sensors, um, they're struggling to compete on performance, so on sheer sensitivity, if that makes sense. So instead, they'll compete on power and size. So, so you know, that's how existing players like Bosch, Analog Devices, you know, ST Microelectronics, TDK, InfraSense, you know, they're really going for kind of enhancing other factors which aren't necessarily related to just the pure kind of what's the noise level, what's the sensitivity side of things. There are some kind of big players who have traditionally made sensors for defense and aerospace and, and industry applications who are now trying to turn their existing products into something that's more consumer facing. Um, and we, we definitely keep an eye on what they're doing because, you know, they already have huge companies set up. They have the manpower, they have the supply chain. So obviously we're, we're very kind of keen to understand what they're going to be introducing into the market. But what we see is that their price points are still really high. And I think that's to do with the fact that when you're a startup, you are very flexible at the start in terms of defining these limits for you. And so if we say the sensors can never be more than this amount of money, we change everything in order to suit that. Whereas if, you're, if you've been working in defense and you're used to kind of supplying things, you know, where, where money isn't a factor for your customer, I think it's really difficult to transform that employee base and the processes you put in to suddenly think, no, 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 everything has to be super cheap now. Um, and in terms of people coming into the market, developing new technologies, yes, there are other kind of academics. There's maybe one or two startups who are trying to do this kind of silicon photonics enhanced inertial measurement unit um, kind of idea. Um, we're all working on different types of kind of optical enhancement, if that makes sense. So luckily, not too worried for now, but you know, who knows what's going to happen about any kind of direct competitors who are who are using the same strategy as we are, um, but of course all of our 
performance levels are going to be similar. So, so it will come down to things like volume scaling, cost. Uh, with anything you do with chips, cost is always linked to yield. Talk me through kind of how you came to find yourself in a position where you thought you were working on something really interesting with potential commercial value and kind of what galvanized you into actually taking those steps to take it to market. Yeah, so I spent like the majority of my career in academia. I did work in industry for a few years and all of that experience, I kind of, I thought, oh, that was really good, but not sure how it's going to come back into my life later. And I, but actually in my PhD, the research field that I was studying was cavity optomechanics, which is, you know, this whole concept of an optical resonance being really sensitive to mechanical motion. And it's the same kind of physics that's behind LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And that's what's used to detect gravitational waves. So it's the first time that these gravitational waves have ever been detected has been over a century of searching for these things. And the only way that it happened was thanks to cavity of mechanics, which then created the most sensitive human-made displacement detector in the world. So I think when, when that happened and when LIGO won the Nobel Prize, I was like, okay, I'm in the research field that is breaking world records. You know, there must be a way to transform something else just as it's transformed gravitational wave detection. So, you know, if we could just apply that to some application that is kind of really useful for society, we're onto a winning kind of idea. And so it took me quite a few years, actually, because I went through a few iterations at the start. Um, and then what happened was reality. You know, I spoke to customers, I spoke to investors and, you know, there's only so much you can do to convince people. If, if what you hear back is a no, <laughs> you have to take it seriously just because the science is amazing and there's, you know, uh, so much potential for it doesn't mean the market is ready. So I actually then pivoted and decided to kind of go a bit further away from my academic research, not do the quantum sensing aspect. And then I suddenly remembered all of this experience I had in defense in making these inertial sensors and being in a clean room um, and thought, oh my gosh, why didn't it occur to me that I should just combine the kind of MEMS that I had been involved with with this optical um, kind of cavity optomechanics kind of mechanism. And so I was furloughed from my, um, my fellowship during the pandemic. And during that furlough time, because you do need time, it's really difficult to do this as a kind of part-time, you know, trying to do it alongside an academic career. It was during that time where I got to focus 100% my attention that then I invented the two patents that Zero Point Motion was founded on. So it was a bit of a weird story in terms of, you know, there was a moment where I almost didn't go through it because I was like, it's too difficult. The investors aren't happy with the idea. The market doesn't need it to be that sensitive. Um, and then managed to kind of, you know, get out of that mentality and pivot into something which I think now is a really, really strong in a commercial way, a really strong prospect. So interesting. Yeah, I, th I think good to recognize that process and be kind of aware of it, because so often people, I guess, just plow on, even though they do hear initial no's and just assume that at some point something will change and people just don't, you know, see how amazing this is yet. It sounds that you've had kind of, I guess, that 
ambition that like you know the burning spark of wanting to start something for a while then where do you think that came from oh it's a really interesting question because I, I don't want to be negative but I think some of it comes from just uh, not me not being happy in academia I think was a was a part of it because I can't ignore you know that I was on track effectively to like stay in academia you know I had two fellowships I was bidding for you know funding all the time I had industry funding I was doing all the right things to kind of show that I wanted to stay in academia and to eventually get to some sort of hopefully professor status or whatever um but what I found was you know it was so tiring doing that and you know the system isn't uh, equitable at all you know there's the statistics there's papers out there that show you know the hiring processes the funding allocation publication process you know at every step there are always challenges um across you know you know it's it's not just kind of me as a woman or as a woman of color you know across loads of different issues you know accessibility ableism there's so many things which um, you have to kind of try and survive to eventually get this kind of holy grail that you've got tenure effectively and you can have a research group and you can do things where it's just not all on yourself to do. And I certainly found it really difficult to balance work life. I don't mind working long hours, especially if I'm passionate about something and it's certainly something I've never shied away from. But what I started to feel was a sense of you know, I'm putting in all this effort, but nothing belongs to me. You could be a postdoc for a year, invent something amazing, and then you can't take that invention to your next role. The universities do not cooperate with each other. So I had to either stay at UCL forever, for trying to bring in my own funding until they offered me any sort of permanent position, or I'd have to move somewhere else and start from scratch. And that starting from scratch to me was just too painful because my PhD I started from scratch and I kind of felt like I've done my my time you know I, I love this technology I really want to work on it it's not necessarily about me and my ego it's about this technology will die if I leave if that makes sense and I thought that was just such a, a terrible thing to happen and so you know, I started thinking about commercialization purely as a mechanism to continue working on technology. And apart from kind of bidding for academic grants, you, your only other option is really to see whether or not there's a commercial path that you can get investment for and, and build it as a product instead. So I didn't take the decision lightly. It took me many years of, of thinking and I was still juggling an academic career whilst figuring out the commercial path. Uh, but I think in the end, ultimately, what I started to feel just in terms of, you know, how I was writing the business plan, doing pitches, talking to other founders. I did the Bristol University QTech Incubator, which was like a really condensed kind of MBA almost. It was fantastic. All of those activities, I was experiencing so much joy and also a sense of additional confidence that I would not have gained just trying to like you know, keep sustaining myself in academia. So I think it was just a combination of lots of things, but I think at the heart of it, it was a sense of me trying to figure out what was gonna make me happy and trying to stay with the technology for as long as I could. I think those were the two key things that made me really jump ship and go, okay, I'm gonna be 100% on this now. Totally, so I mean, yeah, it's like a lot of, um, a lot of notes, I guess, of being able to actually be 
you know, in control of your own path, I, I guess, and, and rewarded for the activity and the effort that you are putting in. Uh, I think, you know, maybe the academic system has a lot of self-reflection to do at some point, but maybe that's beyond beyond what we should dive into. I guess, um, talk to me about how you found then, uh, you know, launching the business and stepping into that new role as a CEO. What things had you, you know, taken from your your past as a scientist that worked really well? What were the kind of friction points that you really had to say, no, don't think about the world like that. Think about the world like this instead. Yeah, so I think one thing about staying in academia is it is a fantastic training ground. I mean, firstly for resilience, but also in terms of understanding the literature or understanding the market. You know, you do so many literature reviews as an academic, you always have to kind of place your whatever technology, you know, your theory against others, you're constantly doing that back and forth and 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 seeing where the differences are, where the improvements are, where the future direction of the research could go. And I think all of those skills are absolutely translatable to a company. So, so all of those skills and just being able to critically kind of identify and evaluate technology was, was really important. I'm glad that I've, I've experienced so much of that because I think you know, 100%, like, you know, all the investors that talk to me, they're absolutely sure that on the technology side, I know my stuff and and I have ample ways of proving that I know it as well. And I think we've all been there with peer review and things like that. You learn you learn how to fight your way through. Um, and, and, and I think that's really valuable. The other side of it is um, things that I had to learn, which were different, I think was around, you know, the structure of a company and recruiting people and, and how do we want the team to look like? And I think at the start, when I was planning out like how many people you know we could afford, but also how many people were critical to get the product kind of going, you know, I came about it in a really simple way of just like, oh, you know, all technical people, <laughs> you know, it's it's an R and D thing. It's it's you know that's what the seed phase is. But actually, what you forget is. The, the key people that you have to please are the investors. And actually the investors don't necessarily care about the detail in the technology development, but they what they can understand immediately is the commercial traction. So being able to line up end users, getting some traction with customers, you know, understanding the sales pipeline, those are things that I, in the, in the initial stages, kind of missed out. And so what I've done is, we, we have Gordon, who's our executive chairman, and he's a seasoned founder. He's founded four companies, all of them exits and IPO. He's been through the whole kind of process. You know, I, I rely on him just to help, help me make sure that I'm not missing out things because my mind is just naturally more technical aligned. Totally. So, I mean, I guess the, the undercurrent of that is um you know realizing that you're exceptionally technically proficient and that there's almost this other half of a business equation which is like the real understanding of people like how to bring them on board and what they actually want um and you know that maybe like the best uh, sensitivity isn't actually although technically really interesting what the marketplace really actually wants to do you mentioned a couple of mentors that you've brought on I guess um, I'm always interested in how you go from how you go about actually finding those people in the first first place um, and, and kind of bringing them into the folds of your company. 
Yeah, it was a long journey, actually. So I would say that I've been thinking or doing, you know, things that eventually led to zero point motion for around four years. So although the company wasn't incorporated until 2020, um, you know, my first kind of entry point into this was I did this Nature Entrepreneur First Innovation Forum. It was like a little mini Dragon's Den thing that they put on. And and I was writing my PhD thesis at the time. So I obviously my mind was like, you know, quite focused on just finishing the PhD. But I had a little bit of bandwidth to just try something else to see if I liked it. I had no intention that this was going to be my future but it was an opportunity. I think I'd only watch TV shows and things like that. And it always looks so exciting. But of course you want to know what the little kind of pain, you know, it's not everything's gonna be 100% fun, right? So I kind of wanted to have a little experience of kind of what the stress level was gonna be like, what the things that you think about, the things that you'd worry about, how they'd be different. Um, and so since then, I ended up, you know, meeting various people and I probably met like a good number of people that I could have invited in, you know, to be on the founding team, to be uh, an exec or an advisor. Um, but what I found was you got to be really careful that you don't let too many people in too quickly before you yourself have kind of formed this kind of strong vision of what you want to do and where you want to sit in the company. I think, I think a big thing that a lot of academics in particular go through is this conundrum, do you become CTO or CEO? And I just, you know, know from experiences of other people, as well as my experience, that typically the universities will try and encourage you to be CTO, and they may bring in someone external to be CEO. That, that works for some people, but it did, did not work for me. And so I definitely knew that I wanted to stay CEO and I effectively rejected any opportunity or any deal or any makeup of company that meant that that wasn't going to be safe for me. Mm. Um, the other side of it is there's lot, so many people that want to help. Um, but you know, you've got to make a decision a lot of the time based on how you get on with them. So, so there was people that had CVs that looked absolutely amazing, but if you don't vibe with that person, you know, it's not worth kind of going through a potentially really painful experience because trying to part ways later is far worse than kind of saying, you know, no <laughs> earlier if that makes sense and they may not necessarily have the energy or bandwidth to help you um, and you just got to be careful about that you know what the expectation is in terms of how much work they're going to do versus you know whether they're just a, a good person with a good name let's say um so with gordon i met him through um a shared uh, um, uh, link and so after speaking to Gordon for a, you know a few times you know we decided that yeah let's do this and and what's really funny is that I've only met Gordon face to face once and and he's really critical you know he's who I run ideas through we make decisions together he makes sure that I'm not forgetting about commercial aspects we are planning ahead not just planning for today um, and the other side of it is that human side of just having someone else say, yeah, I agree with you. That's such a big thing for a founder to have anyone say, yes, you know, I, I back you on this. And I recommend, you know, anyone who's doing it alone, like I did, you know, you don't have to necessarily bring someone in officially, but just surround yourself with 
people like Gordon. You know, I have other people that aren't officially associated with the company, but that I talk to about stuff. Uh, and and it's just so important to have that affirmation because uh, it's scary. It's it's a lonely job. Yeah, <laughs> no, ab- absolutely. And I, I guess kind of the 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 point being that it's okay to take time building that team, that community around you, and it's okay to hold off until you really feel conviction that these people are right to support the business. Because, I mean, they always say it's uh, harder to get someone out. It's harder to get out of a business relationship than out of marriage, right, at the end of the day. So (laughs) you gotta be extra, extra cautious. Um, I want to talk, uh, just as you brought it up very quickly around the the seed round that you did um, and and kind of how you found that process. That's a nice uh, big (laughs) seed round, congratulations, well done. Um, But yeah, just talk me a little bit through the the process of bringing investors on, on board. I appreciate you've been talking to them for a while at that stage, but what did it actually look like for you? So we created our business plan and we were already happy with, with, you know, how it looked, you know, it said everything we wanted to say. Um, and we created a list basically of investors. There's a massive difference between investors that will go for the kind of, I don't know, software things or, um, you know, things related to, I guess, more, more social kind of endeavors, apps, you know, that kind of stuff versus investors that will go for things like quantum technology, you know, silicon chip type stuff, um, you know, even drones, for example, in a big hardware based kind of products. Um, and the, the, the ones that had a portfolio where they had, you know, done investments in kind of silicon were really important to us because it just means that it's the, the, they're aware of the journey. And then we literally just, you know, sent emails and and took, you know, so many calls, so many pitches. I think we pitched to like 20 or 25 investors in the end. Um, some of them were immediate no's, which was fine. You just sort of take that with a pinch of salt and carry on. Some of them we got to pretty kind of mature levels in terms of speaking about what a deal could look like. Um, and just through the process of, you know, you know, drilling down more detail, understanding, you know, how they work, what the terms would be. We we're just very lucky that Foresight Williams very quickly wanted to be lead. And that was a real strength for us. As soon as you find your lead investor, things do become a lot easier, especially talking to other investors. You know, they can also introduce you to investors they've worked with before. And what was really interesting was um, the contact that I had for Foresight Williams was someone that I spoke to like three years ago and who'd, who'd kept up with me. Like every year we'd do a back and forth of me being like, yeah, still no business plan. <laughs> Can you wait another year? Um, and so just wanted to just reiterate to people that, you know, don't be worried about meeting or speaking to people even before you feel ready because those contacts do come out in the end. Like So yeah, we ended up doing two closes. So we did the first close around kind of November, December, and then we finished the second close in January. All in all, it took about more than six months. So we started around May of last year, just starting to slowly talk to more people. Doing it over the Christmas period, it always adds a little bit of anxiety and just pangs in the back of your mind, but it is one of those things. Uh, I always like to ask for those that are kind of envisaging themselves walking this similar pathway um, or if you could look back at your younger self and kind of feedback some advice that would have helped you short circuit the process what would those words of advice actually be 
Oh, go faster. Yeah, I, I'm glad I took my time, but I feel as if I could have done a lot of this stuff, let's say a year or two earlier. So I think I would have realized that my confidence was there already. It's just, it's just a switch in your mentality. It's always hard if you're, if you're transitioning from one thing to another. It's, you know, when do you make that change? And I think you're always ready sooner than you actually do it. Um, but I, at that time, especially because I was in London, um, I hadn't started the Bristol University incubator yet. I kind of felt a bit alone. So I think, you know, if you can get yourself into an incubator or an accelerator or be a part of a community like Spin Up Science, for example, do it, do that as soon as you can. You don't have to let go of whatever you're doing on a day to day, but be embedded into that community. Talk to the talk to other founders um, because those things ultimately is what prepares your mentality to change. Uh, and then everything else follows. You know, if you're an academic, you already have all the tools in your bag. It, to me, it's more about the perception of being a CEO or being a leader like that. And that doesn't come from necessarily reading, you know, textbooks and, and papers and guides. I think that comes from other people around you giving you that reinforcement. Um, and then the second thing is to never forget your own worth in the company um, and so my thing is to stand your ground don't feel like oh i should be so lucky the investors are going to give me money i will bow down and do whatever they want that's not the mentality and also it's an awful way to start a relationship with an investor because the investors want to see you have strength so i think it would be really weird if you just agreed to every single thing the investor asked for that that's not a good relationship going forward where you have to be the leader um, so yeah, th those two things are my key pieces of advice. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, Leah, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for your uh, time and good luck with kind of the next steps and the hiring process and all of those sorts of things. Uh, from all of us uh, at Spin Up Science, but all of us in the audience today. Also, thanks for your time. It's been really good talking to you. You've been listening to our conversation with Dr. Leah Lee, CEO of Zero Point Motion. To be involved with future live events or stay up to date, feel free to join us on social media. All further info is on our website at spin-up.science. My name is Dr. Ben Miles, and this has been the Scientist CEO Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.